أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters ورحمة الله وبركاته and welcome to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi. As you recall, my dear brothers and sisters, uh, we've been discussing the most important events of the eighth year after the Hijrah. And of course, the eighth year after the Hijrah uh, represents the climax of the prophetic biography. It's the year in which the Prophet conquered Mecca after being exiled for almost a decade. The Prophet returns as a victor, leading an army of 10,000 soldiers to recapture and to gain control over the city that had expelled him. We mentioned the details uh, regarding the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet he purged Mecca of its idol worship. And as you can imagine, there were hundreds of thousands of Arabs who presented themselves to the Prophet after the conquest of Mecca. Uh, They embraced Islam. They lined up to pledge their allegiance to their new leader, the Prophet Now you might wonder, you know, why did they all join the Prophet at this time? Now it seems that in Arabia, the Arabs naturally align themselves with the powerful. Many of the, the tribes that remained relatively neutral they were waiting to see the outcome of this conflict between the mushrikeen and the muslimin. So they wanted to see, you know, who is going to end up becoming the victor? Who's going to be in control? Which of these two parties is going to emerge as the most powerful entity in Arabia? Now, after the conquest of Mecca, it was clear that Arabia had changed. And the Muslims were now in charge. The Muslims became the superpower. And of course, uh, at the head of this movement, you have Rasulullah So after the conquest of Mecca, you have a multitude of tribes that were neutral in terms of their relationship with the pagans and the Muslims. They tried to stay out of this conflict. After they saw the conquering of Mecca, By the Prophet they came into the fold of Islam in droves. Now this mass conversion into Islam has been succinctly captured by the Holy Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nasr, this short surah that we've memorized in Jizu Amma, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about this historic moment in the history of Islam. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and of course this ayah, these, uh, this surah, was revealed. There's a difference of opinion regarding when it was revealed. But from the, the verses and the language that's being used in the surah, we can infer that this verse was revealed uh, shortly uh, before. It was re- re- revealed before the conquest of Mecca. And it essentially describes what is going to happen when, uh, when the conquest takes place? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ When the help of God comes and the conquest. وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا And you see the people entering into the religion of God in multitudes, in droves. فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ Then exalt with praise of your Lord. 
and ask forgiveness of him. إِنَّهُ كَانَ tawaba. Indeed, he is ever accepting of repentance. Now when you look at this ayah, there are a few points that I want to raise, a few reflections that I'd like to share as it is you know, uh, relevant to our discussion. When you look at the word Nasr, so the ayah says, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ Now the word Nasr typically means victory. But in this context, because Nasr and Fatih are paired and they're brought together, the word Nasr is going to take on a new meaning. So the word Nasr means help, assistance, when the divine aid arrives. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ So Fatih means conquest, that military victory. So Nasr here means when the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes, when the assistance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala arrives. And for those of you who are familiar with the Arabic language, there is a difference between in and idha. The ayah, the surah does not say in ja'a nasrullahi wal fatih. The ayah says idha ja'a nasrullahi wal fatih. The word idha means when the help of God comes. So idha is highlighting that it's not a question about whether or not the help of God will arrive. It's just a matter of time. Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised victory to the Muslims. He's promised His Messenger that He will come out on top, that He will have the upper hand eventually. So it's not a matter of if God is going to help. It's a matter of when His help will arrive. If the ayah said, in جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ The translation would have been, if the help of God comes. But the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always near. أَلَا إِنَّ نَصْرَ اللَّهِ قَرِيبٌ As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. The help of God is always there. It's going to arrive. But certain conditions have to be fulfilled for that divine help to come. Now, the Prophet and his companions, they experienced previous victories. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted victory to the Muslims in Badr. He granted them victory in the battle of Khandaq, the battle of Khaybar. There were many battles in which the Muslims experienced victory. But this particular surah is highlighting that the victory with the conquest of Mecca is something special. It's something that has been, that has been singled out because it stands, it's unique, it's a unique type of victory. So yes, the help of Allah has come to the Muslims on many, many occasions. But the help that Allah is speaking about here and the victory that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning in Surah An-Nasr is a special victory. Now, what makes the conquest of Mecca, what makes it such a unique victory? What is the meaning of victory from an Islamic perspective? Is it just a matter of conquering land? Right? Is it just because the Muslims have expanded their empire in terms of acquisition of land and territory and resources? The answer is no. Real victory in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is much deeper than that. And we can understand the essence of true victory when we reflect on the following statement from the Prophet to Ali ibn Abi Talib. When the Prophet sent Amir al-Mu'mineen to Yemen, he says to the Imam, Ya Ali, he's going to go meet with polytheistic tribes throughout Yemen. The Prophet dispatches Ali to them. Before Ali leaves, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, he says, Ya Ali, la tuqatilanna ahadan hatta tad'uh. O oh, Ali, 
Do not fight anyone until you invite them to Islam. وَإِيَمَ اللَّهِ لَأَيَّهْدِيَ اللَّهُ عَلَى يَدَيْكَ رَجُلًا خَيْرٌ لَكَ مِمَّا طَلَعَتْ عَلَيْهِ الشَّمْسُ وَغَرُوبَتْ The Prophet says, O Ali, do not fight anyone until you invite them to Islam. For by God, if God guides one person at your hands, it is better than anything that the sun shines upon and sets upon. So the real, the real victory is to, facil- to, is to facilitate people's guidance. This is the real victory. So the conquest of Mecca, or at least to bring them closer to guidance, to make them more receptive to guidance. The conquest of Mecca, you have tens of thousands of people entering into the fold of Islam. Now yes, faith may not have settled in their hearts, but it's a victory because these people, their animosity, at least their outward animosity has been neutralized. There's a better chance to bring them towards the truth. Because Islam is now a superpower, they're more likely to lend their ears to the words of the Prophet. So real victory is to guide people or at least soften their hearts towards divine guidance. This is what true victory is. And this is why when we look at and when we reflect on the mission of Imam Sahib al-Zaman, the 12th Imam, the real victory is not to control the resources of the earth. The real victory is not to just destroy your enemies in the battlefield. No, the real victory is to establish global justice, to establish a system of governance that is based on divine standards, to, to create a society that is conducive to spiritual flourishing, to facilitate people's journey towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the real victory. And hence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He speaks very highly of the conquest of Mecca because it made people in that region and even beyond receptive and submissive towards the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another thing that we learn from Surah An-Nasr is this reminder that success and victory comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْ When the help of Allah comes, we have to be acutely aware that success is not possible with, without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So whenever you taste success, whenever, whenever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala facilitates our success, we should always be mindful of Him. We should never become arrogant and think that we are independent or become deluded by our victories. We should always remember that victory comes from Allah and true success is to create opportunities for the light of Allah, for the light of divine guidance to manifest in this world. Now you see that tasbih and hamd are also mentioned in this ayah. فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرُ And the idea here is that, you know, tasbih means tanzih, to negate all imperfection from God. And hamd is to affirm all perfection to God. And hence, whenever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us victory or helps us, these experiences should nurture within us a better understanding of who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. In fact, all of life's experiences are designed to give us opportunities to better know our Creator. And then the surah ends with, فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرُ The ayah is addressing the Prophet first and foremost. Now why does, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala command the Prophet to seek forgiveness? This is a happy occasion, right? This is the conquest of Mecca. Why is the Prophet being told to repent 
and to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to seek His forgiveness. Did He make a mistake? What did He, what did he do for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to command Him to turn to Allah and seek forgiveness? Now of course, in the Shi'i tradition, the Prophet is infallible. His isma is complete, without any exceptions. He does not commit any major sins or minor sins. He does not commit any sins even by accident. The Prophet is the purest of the pure. So obviously Allah is not commanding him. He's not asking him to seek forgiveness for a sin. So why? Why would the Prophet be told to seek forgiveness? We have to understand, brothers and sisters, that istighfar actually has nothing to do with sin. Now for most people, they, they seek forgiveness for their sins. But awliyaullah, anbiya, a'imma alayhim salam they seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for other reasons. And there's a beautiful statement that we have from Amir al-Mu'mineen in his advice to Kumail ibn Ziyad. And from this statement, we can understand why the Prophet, the philosophy behind the tawbah and the istighfar of the Prophet. Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam, he says, Ya Kumail, inna dhunubaka akthar min hasanatik. O Kumail, verily your mistakes, your shortcomings, your errors in judgment, they're greater in number than your good deeds. And your heedlessness, your forgetfulness of Allah is greater than your remembrance of Him. You know, if you just think about you and I, I speak about myself, how much out of 24 hours, how much of our day is truly dedicated to focused remembrance of God? Maybe you say your salah, but our salah, at least myself, most of it is not focused. Our minds are scattered. You know, if you calculate how much dhikr you actually do in a day, maybe it's a few seconds, maybe a few minutes at most. But mo most of the day we're not mindful of Allah Azza wa So we seek forgiveness even if we haven't committed any sins, just by virtue of us not being in constant remembrance of Him. Allah is deserving of being remembered. Let's say that someone is able to overcome this. Let's say that there is someone who remembers God more than he is heedless of Him. But there is no doubt that the bounties of Allah, the blessings upon us, His favors upon us are much greater than our actions. So the istighfar of the Prophet is, we can say it belongs to the third category here. The Prophet is asking God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness, not because he's committed a sin, but because he and every creature, every being is unable to express gratitude to Allah in a way that is befitting. We cannot do justice to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his favors and his bounties. And hence, this feeling of inadequacy is always there in the prophets, in the imams. So when they weep and they beg Allah for forgiveness, this is what they're doing. They recognize that they are not able to thank Allah as He deserves. They're not able to express gratitude that is suitable for the unending, the unlimited blessings that Allah showers upon His servants. Now with that said, one of the most unfortunate incidents that took place after the conquest of Mecca was a bloody massacre. And this is something that needs to be mentioned before we segue into our discussion uh, on the Battle of Hunayn, which we will discuss inshallah uh, in this episode. After the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ, he dispatched several expeditions to the neighboring Arab tribes. You know, as you know, there were many desert-dwelling Arabs. There were nomadic tribes. The Prophet ﷺ also wanted them to come into the fold of Islam. So the Prophet sent emissaries. He, spent, he sent uh, expeditions to go and meet with them and to invite them to Islam, to invite them to monotheism, 
to invite them towards the worship of the one true God and to also destroy the pagan temples. You know, and when the Prophet ﷺ entered Mecca, he destroyed the idols that were surrounding the Kaaba. He destroyed the idols that were housed inside of the Kaaba. And many of these idols, they were personal idols. You know, brothers and sisters, in Arabia, people used to create personal idols. An idol that just I worship. It's not a communal idol where it's open for other people to worship. There are those who used to make idols out of wood, out of dates, out of metal, whatever was available. So those personal idols had been destroyed. But there still remained communal temples where people would go and they would worship idols like Manat and Uzza and Suwa' and so on. So the Prophet ﷺ, he wanted to completely destroy and eradicate traces of monotheism from the region. The Prophet ﷺ, among the people that he appointed to go to these tribes and invite to Islam was Khalid ibn al-Walid. Now of course Khalid ibn al-Walid is a very sketchy personality. Uh, you know, he's When you look at the early history of Islam, especially after the death of the Prophet, this is an individual that committed atrocities against some of the companions of the Prophet. So you might wonder, why does the Prophet appoint someone like Khalid ibn al-Walid to go to some of the tribes and invite them to Islam? Now as you know, brothers and sisters, Arabia is a very tribal uh, culture. And Arabs are naturally going to feel more comfortable with someone who they are familiar with. So because of certain relationships that Khalid ibn al-Walid had in the pre-Islamic era, he already had some rapport with some of these tribes. So the Prophet ﷺ, to take advantage of, of this already existing relationship, the Prophet would send people like Khalid ibn al-Walid to invite them to Islam. Now one of the tribes that Khalid was sent to was a tribe by the name of Banu Jadima. Now this tribe, of course, they knew Khalid, but Khalid ibn al-Walid, he had tensions with this specific tribe. This tribe, Banu Jadima, in the past, probably in the pre-Islamic era, they had killed his uncle, the uncle of Khalid ibn al-Walid. So Khalid, he goes to this tribe, and as he is approaching them, of course, Khalid ibn al-Walid, you know, he's on his horse, he's armed, he's coming with men who are uh, armed. So when Banu Jadima, when they saw Khalid ibn al-Walid approaching, they assumed that Khalid uh, intended to avenge the killing of his uncle. So what did they do? Banu Jadima, they took up arms. And... Now Khalid is entering their territory and he sees that they're uh, armed and Khalid, he unleashes his sword on them and he commands his army to attack the entire tribe. The historical accounts say that he did not just attack those who were armed. You know, maybe there was a little bit of a skirmish. But instead of de-escalating the situation, Khalid ibn al-Walid, he escalated the situation. And he slaughtered up to 30 people from the tribe of Banu, Banu Jadima. And, and some of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they rebuked him. They're telling him that Khalid, they're, they're announcing their Islam but they weren't able to articulate it in a way that was obvious. So instead of saying that, you know, we are Muslims by mistake or because they didn't know better, they said, we are Sabians, we are Sabians. So Khalid began attacking them, slaughtering at least 30 of them. So there was a bloodbath. And of course, you know, this is a huge tragedy and it's, a, it's you know, for lack of a better word, it's a PR disaster for Islam. 
The Prophet had just conquered Mecca, and now news is going to spread that you know Muhammad is sending his companions to slaughter the Arabs in the desert. It was a disaster. When news reaches Rasulullah and this narration is actually from Imam al-Baqir When the Prophet heard of this massacre, when he heard that Khalid indiscriminately killed 30 from Banu Jadima, when news reached him and he attacked people indiscriminately against and he disregarded the advice of some of the senior companions saying they told him that they're Muslims don't attack them don't attack those who are not armed but of course his jahili instincts took over this is a man who was in a state of jahili all of his life he still had these jahili tendencies where you know where it's there's no problem with completely exterminating an entire uh, tribe you know, for the wrong doings of a few. So the Prophet, when he hears about this massacre that was committed by Khalid ibn al-Walid, he raises his hands to the heavens. And what does the Prophet say? Allahumma inni abra'u ilayka mimma sana'a Khalid ibn al-Walid. The Prophet says, Oh Allah, I seek refuge with you from what Khalid ibn al-Walid has done. The Prophet is doing bara'ah from him. Of course, you know, unfortunately Muslims, they'll take a statement like this and they'll say, oh, you know, the Prophet later on, he forgave him and all of the, the Muslims and the companions, they lived happily ever after. This is someone who committed a massacre. The Prophet does bara'ah of him. And again, these massacres didn't end, you know, during the time of the Prophet. What, what happened after the death of the Prophet was even worse. But in any case, Muslims today will revere Khalid ibn al-Walid as the sword of Allah, but very rarely will the real sword of Allah be mentioned in the Masajid. And this is Amir al-Mu'mineen. In any case, Ibn Ishaq, he also reports a narration from Imam al-Baqir salam. Now after this disaster ensued, Someone has to clean up the mess. And there is, no one, there is no one that the Prophet can rely upon other than Ali ibn Abi Talib. Subhanallah. Amir al-Mu'mineen. He is the right-hand man of the Prophet in terms of uh, military prowess. And he's also the right-hand man of the Prophet in terms of diplomacy. Whether the, If the Prophet wants to fight, Ali is on the front lines. If Rasulullah wants diplomacy, again, Amir al-Mu'mineen is, uh, is the person for the job. Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam says, ثُمَّ دَعَى رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ عَلِي ابْنَ أَبِي طَالِبْ The Prophet summoned Ali. فَقَالَ لَهُ يَا عَلِي أُخْرُجْ إِلَى هَأُولَاءِ الْقَوْمِ Oh Ali, go to these people. Go to Bani, Banu Jadima. فَانْظُرْ فِي أَمْرِهِمْ Go and investigate the matter. وَجْعَلْ أَمْرَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ تَحْتَ قَدَمَيْكِ And bury the affairs and the customs of the pre-Islamic era. And the Prophet ﷺ, he gave Amir al-Mu'mineen, he gave Ali ibn Abi Talib a large amount of blood money. And this money was to be given to the the families of the victims as a sort of compensation. And the Prophet he instructed Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, to distribute this money because these people were wronged. What Khalid ibn al-Walid did to them was a grave injustice. So the Prophet also says to Ali that, you know, express my deepest condolences and my apologies to the tribe on my behalf. Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam, he goes and he distributes the blood money to the families. And after the Imam alayhi salam distributed the diyat, there was still a significant amount of money left. And the Imam continued to give them. In fact, the Imam alayhi salam was so generous with the way that he compensated them. 
that the narrations say that he even compensated them for the damage that was done to the wooden bowls that their animals used to drink from. This is how Amir al-Mu'mineen was able to quell the flames of revenge and rage and vitriol. Otherwise, there could have been a complete, uh, an unending cycle of violence between this tribe and the Muslims. Amir al-Mu'mineen, he returns to the Prophet He's able to quell the tensions and mitigate uh, the problem. There's a beautiful narration that Shaykh Al-Tusi, rahmatullahi alayhi, he mentions in his Amali. The narration is from Imam al-Baqir and there's a full chain of transmission uh, going back to Imam al-Baqir. And Imam al-Baqir reports from Jabr ibn Abdullah al-Ansari. And Jabr ibn Abdullah, he says, after, the, after Ali goes to Banu Jadima, he returns to the Prophet. وَرَجْعَ عَلِيٌّ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ إِلَى النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ فَقَالَ لَهُ مَا صَنَعَتْ The Prophet asks Ali, you know, what did you do? What was the course of action that you took after you investigated the matter? فَأَخْبَرَهُ حَتَّى أَتَى عَلَى حَدِيثِهِمْ The Imam explained. He went into details about what he did. فَقَالَ لَهُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ أَرْضَيْتَنِي رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْكِ The Prophet ﷺ, after hearing how Amir al-Mu'mineen managed the distribution of the blood money and how he was able to, to extinguish the flames of revenge and hatred, the Prophet says, O oh Ali, you have pleased me. The Prophet praises the judgment of Ali. أَرْضَيْتَنِي You have pleased me, O Ali. رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْكَ May Allah be pleased with you. There's a difference between when Rasulullah says رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْكَ and when Muslims today say رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْكَ Today, Yazid رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْكَ The killer, may God be pleased with him and the killed, may Allah be pleased with him. Muawiyah, may Allah be pleased with him fought Ali, may Allah be pleased with him. Muawiyah, may Allah be pleased with him executed Hijr bin Adi, may Allah be pleased with him. What kind of system is this? Where the oppressor and the oppressed, everyone, every, Allah is pleased with everybody. Right. Except for the Shia, yes. This is how it is. فَقَالَ مَا صَنَعْتْ What did you do? The Imam explains. And the Prophet says, you have pleased me, may Allah please you. May Allah be pleased with you. Ya Ali, ummati. O Ali, you are the guide of my nation. Ala inna sa'id, sa'id, man ahabbaka wa O Ali, you are the guide of my nation, and verily, the truly prosperous person is the one who loves you, and follows your path. Ala inna shaqiya kulla shaqi man khalafaka wa raghaba an tariqatika ila yawm al And the most wretched person is the one who opposes you, O Ali, and who chooses a path other than your path until the Day of Judgment. This is the position of Amir al Mu'mineen. Now we come to the Battle of Hunayn. Up until the conquest of Mecca, many came into the fold of Islam, but the last three major tribes of pagans that posed a threat to the Muslims were Quraysh, Hawazin, and Thaqif. Now with the Fath, with the conquest of Mecca, Quraysh entered into the fold of Islam. Of course, many of them, they surrendered. They didn't have a choice because they couldn't fight Islam in the battlefields anymore, many of them surrendered to a power that was superior to theirs. And of course, the, the number of munafiqeen also increased, right? because these are people who had animosity towards the Prophet, but they had to change the, the method of attack. 
They created fitna and problems within the community. In any case, after Quraysh entered Islam, the only two tribes, major tribes, that remained pagan and that continued to pose a threat to the Muslim community was Hawazin and Thaqif. Now, the primary tribe in Ta'if, now in our earlier episodes we mentioned that you know, the two major uh, cities in the Arabian Peninsula were Mecca and Ta'if, especially before the Prophet's Hijrah. The primary tribe in Ta'if was Banu Thaqif. And Banu Thaqif, for several generations, several centuries, they were the long-standing rival of Quraysh. Why were they rivals? Banu Thaqif was a wealthier tribe. Right? They had better land. They had more resources. They possessed greater military strength than Quraysh. However, what made Quraysh prominent was the fact that they were the custodians of the Kaaba. So because of Quraysh's proximity to the sacred house, and because for many generations they were the guardians and the custodians of the Kaaba, they were seen as the elites, the most important tribe. Now after Quraysh embraced Islam, Banu Thaqif, they became, they took the mantle of leadership and the territory of Ta'if essentially became the new capital of shirk, the new capital of paganism. So after the conquest of Mecca, Banu Thaqif is looking at Quraysh, okay, Quraysh, they've joined Muhammad, but we're going to remain steadfast. So Banu Thaqif, they had two primary objectives. The first is that we have to preserve the religious tradition of our ancestors. Quraysh, they're a bunch of sellouts. From the perspective of Banu Thaqif, Quraysh, they're sellouts. They abandoned the customs of their forefathers. And this is mentioned time and time again in the Quran. Whenever the Prophet invites these people to abandon their ignorant ways, they say, this is the path of our forefathers. We're going to hold on to these customs. So Banu Thaqif, they wanted to preserve the religious tradition of their ancestors, this tradition of idol worship and paganism. Number two, they wanted to seize control of Mecca. They, wa- they wanted to be the new custodians of God's house. Because from their perspective, the Kaaba is the place where the idols should be. And if Quraysh has now become a monotheistic tribe, we need to take back the, uh, the control of the Kaaba. So these are the two objectives of Banu Thaqif. So with the conquest of Mecca, Banu Thaqif, you know, they're looking around and they're saying that, okay, Muhammad ibn Abdullah has conquered Mecca and Quraysh has submitted to him. We're probably going to be next. So we need to plan accordingly. So Banu Thaqif, they started to send emissaries to every remaining pagan tribe to solicit their support. And they wanted to assemble the largest possible army against the Prophet and the Muslims. So Banu Thaqif, you know, they're the main tribe within the city of Ta'if. And then you have the Bedouin tribe of Hawazin. They live on the outskirts of Ta'if. They join forces. And a bunch of these smaller uh, pagan tribes, they also join the fight. They join the armies of Banu Thaqif and Banu Hawazim, and they form the largest army ever witnessed in Arabia, with troops exceeding 20,000. So the Battle of Hunayn is a very important battle in the history of Islam because it represents the greatest showdown between the forces of monotheism and the forces of polytheism. Now the chief of Ta'if, the chief of Ta'if was a young man. He was a 30-year-old youth by the name of Malik ibn Awf. 
Malik ibn Auf, of course, he was a very zealous person. And you'll see that, you know, one of the, the drawbacks of, of youth is they're very passionate, they're very fiery, but oftentimes they lack experience and wisdom. And we see this with Malik ibn Auf. So the chief of Ta'if, he decides that it's best if we take our women and children and our property with us to the battlefield. Why? To show that we're willing to put everything on the line in this last stand. And he wants to inspire his men to fight for all that they own. He's thinking to himself that if we bring the women and the children, none of the men will flee because they'll be too embarrassed to be seen by their wives and their children act cowardly. So this was his you know, military tactic. Now, there was a famous warrior from Hawazin by the name of Durayd ibn Sinna. He criticized this decision by Malik ibn Auf. Shaykh al-Tabrasi in his book I'lam al-Wara, he reports a narration from Imam al-Sadiq. قال عليه السلام كان مع هوازن دريد بن الصمة شيخا كبيرا خرجوا به يتيمنون برأيه Imam al-Sadiq says there was a man from Hawazin who was in the army his name was Durayd ibn الصمة and he was an elderly man and the Mushrikeen, they took him out. They wanted him to participate because they saw him as a source of barakah. They saw him as a source of blessing. They wanted to benefit from his presence and his wisdom. Nazalu fi Autas. You know, they gathered in an area called Autas, which is in the outskirts of Mecca. And Durayd, this elderly man, who was uh, presumably blind at the time, he says, Mali asma' rugha al ba'ir. So he says, why is it that I hear the grunts of camels and the braying of mules and the crying of children? So Malik, Malik ibn Auf, the chief of Ta'if, he explains to him that I've brought the women and the children and all of our property uh, to be a source of motivation for the male fighters to fight valiantly and also so they don't retreat. Durayd, he severely rebukes him. He basically says to him that, are you out of your mind? Take, he says, take the precious eggs. He calls uh, the women and the children the precious eggs because they're very delicate. He says, take them back to their fortress because their presence on the battlefield is a liability. He explains to Malik that if the army achieves victory, they can return home and enjoy the company of their families. But if we lose the battle, if we lose the battle, at least the women and the children will be out of, out of harm's way. Why are we bringing them on the battlefield? They could be taken as captives. We should keep them out of harm's way. Malik, he mocks Durayd. He ridicules him. فَقَالَ لَهُ Malik, إِنَّكَ قَدْ Malik says to Durayd that, you know, you've become an elderly man, you know, you, and you've become senile. فَقَالَ Durayd, إِن كُنْتُ قَدْ كَبُرْتْ فَأَنْتَ تُورِثُ قَوْمَكَ غَدًا ذُلًّا بِتَقْصِيرِ رَأْيِكَ وَعَقْلِكَ Durayd says that if I've become elderly, you are going to subject your people to humiliation because of the deficiency of your judgment and your intellect. Malik, he ignores him. When the Prophet ﷺ hears that Hawazin are preparing for battle, Rasulullah he gathers his troops in Mecca. And he prepares to meet them. He prepares to confront them. Shaykh Al-Kulayni in Al-Kafi, he reports a narration from Imam Al-Sadiq, where Imam Sadiq says, Ba'atha Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi ila Safwan ibn Umayyah. Fasta'ara minhu sab'een dir'an bitaraqiha. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, of course, you know, he needs equipment, he needs armor, he needs weapons. If he's going to fight against a ferocious 
uh, opponent like Hawazin, the Prophet, he rents 70 sets of armor from Safwan ibn Umayyah, who uh, was not yet Muslim, but because of you know, the, uh, because the Prophet shares the same tribe with him, because they're both from Quraysh, he lends him out uh, the sets of armor. And before uh, Safwan does this, he says the Prophet, أَغَصْبًا يَا مُحَمَّدٍ فَقَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ بَلْ عَارِيَةٌ مَضْمُونًا Safwan is saying that, are you trying to usurp my property? O Muhammad, the Prophet says, no, I just want to borrow it from you and I'll, I'll give it back to you. Safwan, he agrees. And by the way, this Safwan ibn Umayyah is the son of Umayyah ibn Khalaf, the, uh, the man who uh, was the master and the slave owner of Bilal ibn Rabah. Uh, Ali ibn Ibrahim al-Qummi in his tafsir, he says, لَمَّا بَلَغَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ اجْتِمَاعُ هَوَازٍ فِي أَوْطَاسِ when the Prophet learned, when he was notified that Hawazin had gathered, and they'd gathered their troops in Awtas, Jama'al Qaba'il, the Prophet gathered all of the tribes. Faragabahum fil jihad. The Prophet uh, encouraged them uh, to go to, uh, to, to war, to go to fight. Wawa'adahum al Nasr. And the Prophet promised uh, the Muslims, he promised all of these tribes, especially those who were new to Islam, he promised them victory, وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ وَعَدَهُ And Allah, and the Prophet says to them that Allah has promised me أَنْ يُغَنِّمَهُ أَمْوَالَهُمْ وَنِسَاءَهُمْ وَذَرَارِهِمْ That Allah has promised that you will gain a significant number of spoils from this war. So he knows that their iman is weak, so many of them have to be motivated by uh, material uh, gains. قَالَ الْقُمِّي وَكُلُّ مَنْ دَخَلَ مَكَّةَ بِرَايَةٍ أَمَرَهُ أَنْ يَحْمِلَهَا The Prophet basically assembles the army that he came into Mecca with. So 10,000, all of those groups that had a banner with them, a standard, they were summoned. وَعَقَدَ اللِّوَاءَ الْأَكْبَرُ وَدَفَعَهُ إِلَىٰ عَلِيٍ عَلَيْهِ السلام. The main standard, the main one, the biggest standard was given to Ali ibn Abi Talib, because he is, he is the representative of the Muslim army. Now due to the sheer size of the pagan forces, the Prophet ﷺ, he needed reinforcements, and thus he called upon all of the new Muslims of Mecca, and those of the surrounding areas to join the battle, the army of the Prophet ﷺ, it swells to 12,000. So there's an additional 2,000 who joined the ranks of the Prophet's army. Now it's important to note here, brothers and sisters, that many of these new converts, they were not committed. These are people who just had just joined Islam. Many of them uh, were probably not sincere in their conversion. They just surrendered to uh, a more powerful uh, force. Many of these new converts, they were openly hypocritical. So, Many of them, they joined, they wanted to just, they, they wanted to witness the Muslims' defeat. They had very uh, sinister intentions. Others, they just wanted to share in the spoils. And for many of these people, their presence was also a liability, since if they fled, they could break the will of the Muslims. And inshallah, we'll see uh, you know, how that actually happened in the Battle of Hunayn. Now the Prophet you know, yes, his army is less than the Mushrikeen, but it's still a significant army. The Prophet's large army gave many Muslims a false sense of confidence. They became very cocky, very arrogant. Shaykh al-Mufid, rahmatullahi alayhi, in Kitab al-Irshad, he reports, لَمَّا اسْتَظْهَرَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ فِي غَزَاتِ حُنَيْنِ بِجَمْعٍ كَثِيرٍ When the Prophet assembled his troops for the Battle of Hunayn, وَخَرَجَ مُتَوَجِّهًا إِلَى الْقَوْمِ فِي عَشْرَةِ آلَافِ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ The Prophet initially had 10,000 with him. وَرَأَوْ جَمْعَهُمْ وَرَأَوْ جَمْعَهُمْ وَكَثْرَةَ عَدَّتِهِمْ وَسِلَاحَهُمْ ظَنَّ أَنَّ أَكْثَرَهُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يُغْلَبُوا لِذَلِكَ Some of the companions, when they saw how massive the Prophet's army was, they believed that 
the source of their strength was in their numbers. They believed, and many of them were saying that no one can defeat us. Abu Bakr was very impressed by the sheer size of the Prophet's army. Abu Bakr, when he saw 10,000 soldiers, he said, Today we will not be defeated because of our small numbers. There was no insha'Allah, there was no with the help of Allah. He made this statement without qualifying it with the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And hence Allah azza wa jal in Surah At-Tawbah, Ayah 25, he mentions the delusion of some of the Muslims. Allah says, لَقَدْ نَصَرَكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مَوَاطِنَ كَثِيرَةٍ وَيَوْمَ حُنَيْنٍ God has already given you victory in many regions. It was Allah who gave you victory in, in Badr. It was not you. Allah is the one who gives you victory when you are small in number, and it is Allah who gives you victory when your numbers grow. Victory only comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. إِذْ أَعْجَبَتْكُمْ كَثْرَتُكُمْ Allah says, and even on the day of Hunayn, when your great number pleased you, فَلَن تُغْنِ عَنْكُمْ شَيْئًا But it did not avail you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if He doesn't want you to gain victory, even if you have all of the weapons and all of the armies of the world behind your back, backing you, it's not, you're not going to achieve victory. وَضَاقَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُبَتْ And the earth was confining for you with its vastness. ثُمَّ وَلَّيْتُمْ مُدْبِرِينَ Then you turned back fleeing. Allah mentions the, the mass retreat that took place in the battle of Hunayn. Inshallah, in our next episode, we'll speak about the details of the battle and what exactly ensued and how the Muslims uh, gained victory in the Battle of Hunayn. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for tuning in once again. And I look forward to having you join on future episodes of The Life of Prophet Muhammad. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.